Good morning, friends. Um, I thought that I would begin this morning by, um, by reading a, a sonnet on First Peter, or on Peter, Peter the person. Uh, there's a, a, a priest named Malcolm Geit, uh, chaplain of Girton College, associate chaplain of St. Edward King and Martyr in Cambridge, uh, and he is an amazing poet. He's written a series of sonnets called um, Sounding the Seasons. Um, includes uh, sonnets on all of the O antiphones um, on the Stations of the Cross. Uh, but he also has uh, sonnets for saints' days. And we were talking yesterday about which, what are some of the ways in which the biography of Peter might influence our reading of this letter. And I thought I would go ahead and try not to butcher his sonnet. Um, so, Saint Peter. Impulsive master of misunderstanding... You comfort me with all your big mistakes, jumping the ship before you make the landing, placing the bet before you know the stakes. I love the way you step out without knowing, the way you sometimes speak before you think, the way your broken faith is always growing, the way he holds you even when you sink. Born to a world that always tried to shame you, your shaky ego vulnerable to shame. I love the way that Jesus chose to name you before you knew how to deserve that name. And in the end, your Savior let you prove that each denial is undone by love. Malcolm Geit. Brilliant. I had so much fun last night. Uh, I was really disappointed when it was over so early. I, I do worry, though, that maybe not everybody understood uh, the, the skit that our sisters in ministry did. I've, I've already received some fashion advice this morning from someone who'll <laughs> remain unnameless. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, no, really, I found myself thinking all night last night, they should be on TV, and then I could change the channel. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, am I? You know, I think I heard mail calls over for the week, so... <laughs> This is great. It, it, it made me realize that uh, last night proved that Presbyterian humor is almost as much of an oxymoron as Methodist theology. <laughs> All right, that's my last one. Okay, there we go. Well, so... <laughs> it took me all night to think of those things. I haven't slept. <laughs> but, but here we are. Well, we've been in First Peter for a few days, and uh, I hope you have had the chance or will take the opportunity in the future to, to actually read this letter at one sitting, to read it out loud at one sitting, um, because so many of the same themes show up again and again, slightly different keys, slightly different uh, uh, expressions, but the passage that we'll begin with today, uh, 1 Peter 4.12, really goes right back to the beginning of the letter and hit some of the same notes, but now more intensely because of what's come in between. The question of belonging to Christ and the relationship of that belonging to the present experience of suffering has been deepened as the author has presented before us the story of Jesus. Jesus, the one who, who unjustly condemned, did not return curses with curses, did not threaten when he suffered, but rather trusted himself to God 
and in so suffering according to the will of God has brought salvation to us and has made possible for us a life like His. And so, as Peter says now, beloved, one more time, dear ones, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when His glory is revealed. We heard this right at the beginning of the letter. God has called you for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. God has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Even though now for a little while we might have to suffer grief in various kinds of trials, Yet we rejoice. Though we have not seen Jesus, we love Him. Though we do not see Him now, we rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because in these trials, despite these trials, through these trials, we are receiving the inheritance that God is keeping for us and keeping us to inherit. So, insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, rejoice. Because when his glory is revealed, you will again shout for joy and be glad. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Um, Peter has, has quoted scripture. He's alluded to it even more often. Here, once more, he goes back to the prophet Isaiah. And I actually think this is a, is a kind of a stunning uh, use of scripture because he's drawing on Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 sounds actually a lot like uh, Isaiah 61 that Jesus brings out in his inaugural sermon in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah 11 speaks about a, a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and on this one will rest the Spirit of God, Spirit of wisdom and knowledge, power, fear of the Lord. And, uh, and it's clear that this is a messianic figure, uh, the, the Davidic heir who will rule the nations with a rod of iron as chapter 11 goes on. But look what Peter has done. He said, because you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, you participate not only in Christ's life of patient suffering, but already in his glorious destiny. And the spirit that rests fully on Jesus is the spirit that rests on you. We're getting ready to celebrate Pentecost in a few weeks. Uh, Again, thinking about Peter's own biography, what changes Peter from the doubting, fearful fisherman spooked by a young girl at a fire asking if he's from Galilee. It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit that fills Peter and the other disciples that enables them to proclaim boldly the good news that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, and that in exalting Jesus, God has, through Jesus, now sent the Spirit. Um, The Spirit of glory That is, the Spirit of God rests on you. Peter assumes that we will experience the same empowering that he has experienced. And that is in suffering, not apart from it. The the already and the not yet is a time in which the Spirit of God is not absent. And I've wondered, I remember a, a, a preacher in college asking the question, if we have the Spirit of Christ in us now, the Spirit of God's Son dwells in us, 
what more of God will we know when we are perfected? And I think, um, I think there definitely is uh, a language of fullness, of perfection that the New Testament holds out for us. Um, the spirit that we have now is a down payment on an even greater intimacy with God, but God has given us His Spirit. If we know more of God, it's the God that we know now that we will know even more closely. The Spirit of God is resting on you. These are people who are shameful in the eyes of their neighbors, and perhaps being made an example of by the governing authorities. Don't be ashamed, Peter says. They may not see it, but the Spirit of God's glory rests on you. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. <clears throat> Peter has said you were called to inherit a blessing. That's why you need to bless when you are cursed. You are blessed. And, you know, we've, we've had the advantage of growing up with the New Testament, um, growing up with a Christianity that can look back on a couple millennia of, of martyrs who proved the truth of this text. But I, I wonder about for these first recipients, how radical this might be as a shift in the way that they think. If the story that we are telling, Peter says, about Jesus is true, then what is happening to you is not what everybody around thinks is happening. And your hope, your hope is that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you as well to share in his glory. And the reason why that hope is secure is because God has already given us new birth into that living hope. Let none of you, he says, suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker, NRSV has, the New English Bible has, uh, you shouldn't be suffering from meddling in other people's business. Um, as far as any of the, the people who study ancient words, these lexicographers can tell, Peter's made up this word. Episcopos. So it comes from episcopus, where we get bishop, episcopal, somebody who's an overseer. But alotri means other people's business. And, and there's some debate about whether this is something really bad, like spying on other people. But the best parallels we have uh, actually means not minding your own business, meddling with other people. And, uh, and I think it's interesting. I mean, the, the reason why people have looked for a, a more... Uh, uh, sorry, my, my brain is not working this morning, um, have, have looked for a, a darker meaning here is because it's in conjunction with murderer, thief, evildoer, criminal. But I, I wonder if Peter isn't just saying, look, you know, certainly none of these big things, but let's just not be annoying to the people around us either. <laughs> you know, don't suffer because you don't have wisdom to know how to get along with those who don't share your faith. Um, we're not the moral police. We're not the ones who need to be known as those who meddle in other people's business. Uh, this is part, I think, of that tension that we've seen elsewhere in this letter between a resistance but also a quiet living out of faith in front of others, trusting that they will see this honorable conduct and be led to God. There are words, and we ought to be ready to make a defense, Peter says. Um, perhaps the wives are being counseled to not use words because they have been using words and it isn't helping. Um, I don't think this is a, 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 an excuse for never speaking the words of the gospel, but it's the other side of the coin, which usually wisdom involves a both and. Sometimes it's best just to be quiet 
and to do what we do for the glory of God, um, but to trust that others might be attracted through our lifestyle rather than at least initially through us telling them how wrong they are. So these are possible charges, and these are charges that may well have been thrown around at the Christians as, uh, by the authorities. Um, I visited in the Czech Republic in 1993 with some, some representatives from the Evangelical Free Church, and we were visiting the Czech Brethren denomination that had survived 40 years of communist oppression. Uh, one of the saddest things to me, although I guess I shouldn't have been surprised about it, is as, as leaders in the church were dragged off to prison early on in the communist takeover, they weren't dragged off to prison as Christians. They were child molesters. They were caught with, uh, you know, with their hand in the till. They went to prison, the public reason was, because they were threats to society. I guess I always had in my mind, well, wow, you know, it might be kind of grand to go suffer for Jesus, but what if you're suffering because the, the government has framed you as a child pornographer? Um, and that was the extra layer of pain that these people and their families and friends had to deal with. Um, why should we expect that the government would play fair? Uh, so a thief, a criminal, that's what, these, that's what Pliny is doing when he's putting these stubborn Christians to death. Um, they, they, we ought to get rid of them. They're, they're a problem to society. So Peter says, make sure that we aren't actually guilty of what they charge us with. But if you suffer as a Christian, verse 16... Don't consider it a disgrace. It is not a disgrace. But glorify God because you share in this name. You have a share in this name. There's a textual variant here. In the, they've gone back and forth. It's, it's either a name or a share. I think that, that the, the latest text says, glorify God because you have a share. Um, you have a share in the body of Christ. You have a share in the sufferings of Christ. You have a share in the destiny of Christ, I think is the idea. And then um, he reminds us, again, what time it is. You can't get away from eschatology in this letter. This letter doesn't make any sense if Jesus is not coming back, if the sufferings of Christ are not followed by not only the glory of the resurrection, but the glory of the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter says, you know, the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And now quoting Proverbs, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? As I've puzzled over this statement, um, I think it may work at a number of different levels. On one level, it is don't be surprised at this trial because trials are coming on the whole world. We know this because this is what Jesus told us before he went to the cross. Uh, there will be suffering. Um, their scholars talk about a, a wider notion in early Judaism of the messianic woes. But the kind of, this isn't just Hal Lindsey's invention, this is the sort of idea that things are going to get worse and God's people will be persecuted and it may look darkest before the dawn. This idea comes out of Israel's own experience, um, subject to the Persian Empire and then subject to the Greek successors of Alexander. Um, see it in the book of Daniel, people deeply faithful to God, completely respectful to authority, and yet tossed in a furnace because they will refuse to worship anyone but the one true God. Those three are delivered, but what about the martyrs under the Maccabean revolt who submit to torture 
watching their children murdered in front of their eyes before they themselves are killed, rather than betray the God of Israel. How do we explain this? It's not that we've been unfaithful and have been sent into exile. We're faithful, and yet we're suffering. They see here the necessity of being able to get a heavenly vision to make sense of what is happening. Evil is triumphing apparently, but only so that God can definitively judge evil and vindicate God's people. And so certain are they of God's faithfulness to do that, that they, they develop an idea that is, I think, hinted at in the prophetic scriptures, but is never fully stated the way it is in 2 Maccabees, where the martyr says as he's dying to, the, to King Antiochus, who's torturing him, tear my body apart because God is going to give it back to me on the day of resurrection. So Peter says there is judgment coming on the world. Uh, evil is evil. Evil touches all of us. And um, in God's grace, judgment begins with the household of God. It, often people have seen an allusion here to Ezekiel 9, um, and it, it's maybe the closest thing. I don't know if it was in Peter's mind or not, but God sends his angels to, to begin to bring judgment on Jerusalem, and the angels are told to start from the temple and work their way out as they bring judgment. Peter may have picked up on that, but he's told us that the household of God isn't the temple in Jerusalem, it's us, it's the community. And so if judgment, if suffering is hitting us first, what will it look like when it gets outside of God's people? I think if you go with this interpretation, um, you know, you have to do so knowing that, that people are going to hear this in, in ways that aren't healthy. Um, I'm suffering because God is judging my sin. Um, we're suffering because somehow we're unfaithful. And that's not the world of thought out of which this grows. And so maybe it's better not to go there. I'll give you another reading in a minute. Um, but if we do go there, it, it really comes out of these martyr narratives. Um, in Second Maccabees, in the Psalms of Solomon, you find... Um, actually, it's in 2 Maccabees where the narrator says, Dear reader, don't get too discouraged as you hear about these sufferings. God loves us, and so God disciplines us now for our good so that we don't continue heaping up sins for the future. When God comes to judge the world, we will have been purified. And so God's intentions for us are good. If God brings suffering, it's only to heal and correct um, as I say, I think I have trouble with that way of thinking, um, in part because I've seen it twisted in so many ways, and I've twisted it myself. Another way to think of it, though, is in light of, of what I would say is a, is a clear missional concern in First Peter. Live such honorable lives among the Gentiles so that they might see your honorable deeds and glorify God on the day he comes to judge. I, I wonder if here there's not a sense in, in which the concern might be not just to shore us up. Well, if it's bad for us, they're going to get it so much worse. But rather to say, oh my goodness, if we're going through this, what is it going to be like for those who don't yet know Christ? Maybe instead of licking our wounds and turning inside, we ought to care all the more that those who don't know him, those who are not obedient to the good news, find life while there's still time. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Might that drive us to prayer and to mission? Might that drive us to 
continue putting up with the sort of suffering that we receive precisely because we won't just go in the corner and be quiet. You all are, you all are, uh, you're on the front lines. I mean, it's safe, pretty safe to be an academic, honestly, um, because I can always say, there's three or four ways of talking about this. And, um, but you all are leading communities of faith. You are representatives of communities of faith. You're going to be the people that the newspaper reporters want to talk to when, when some Christian somewhere does something stupid and they want to know what you think about it. Um, you may be the ones uh, feeling pressure, explicit or implicit, to just be quiet. Your private beliefs are your private beliefs, but don't make trouble for us. Um, your Christians are just welcome to hold your faith as passionately as you want, as long as you don't do it in public space. I mean, that's the message I think we all get. I think it, I'm imagining it falls quite heavily on you sometimes. Um, and Peter seems to be calling us to the difficult task of wisely witnessing in word and deed, avoiding this busybody-ness, but being willing to stay engaged, in, to stay in places, to, to speak in public, to live in public in ways that only bring more pressure, to be willing to put up with shame, knowing that from God's point of view, it's not shame at all, it's glory. And to read the text this way would be to say one of the reasons we do this is for the sake of those who don't see it correctly yet, who, who maybe if we persist in patient witness of doing good, of walking in love, of not returning evil for evil or cursing for cursing but a blessing, maybe they will find life through that. Peter says, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do what's right. I think that's his, his last word to the whole community. If doing what God calls you to do brings shame and pressure and suffering, continue to do it and trust God. And uh, I, love this, I love this verse. It's one of the first ones in the book that I memorized um, but it, it takes me right back to the story of Jesus in 1 Peter 2. He trusted himself to the one who judges justly. A person tried and condemned and executed by unjust human authorities, Jesus recognizes that God is the just judge. And the resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. And it is a promise that God will not abandon will indeed vindicate those who continue to trust him while they do what is right. Um, I don't know how that would work as a mission statement. It's interesting to think. Um, I, don't, I think it's one of these statements that opens up lots of possibilities for our congregations. What is right for us to do? There are a lot of points of contact with people outside. There are a lot of people we can cooperate with in doing right. Um, let's trust God and continue to do right. Well, Peter turns then specifically to the elders, uh, to the presbyters in these communities, those among you who are presbyters. I, I think at this period um, in the history of the church, there's not simply one system of church government. Um, these churches seem to be led by a council of elders, and there are models in the ancient synagogue and ancient Greek city-state for this. Um, 
But Peter now, who has introduced himself in the letter as an apostle, adopts the posture of a colleague, and he calls himself a sum presbyteros, a fellow presbyter. So he stepped off the stage and come down and said, now as a fellow presbyter, let me say something to you all. I would step down, but you wouldn't be able to see me. I'm not tall enough. <laughs> and he not only calls himself a fellow presbyter, but he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, that's interesting. I mean, he's talked so much to this point about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, about the, the character of Jesus under suffering. And this word witness, I take to mean not just I saw Jesus dragged off by the authorities, um, but I'm a witness because I'm living in them right now alongside with you. And I'm a witness, in fact, not only of the sufferings of Christ, which are past, although continuing to be worked out in the community of Christ, but also of the glory that is about to be revealed. I am a, I'm a partner. I'm a sharer. I have a stake in the glory that is about to be revealed. And so, if this is the story we inhabit, Jesus who has died, who has risen again, who is exalted above every angel and power and authority and over the people who are persecuting you, who is ready to judge the living and the dead, who has given you new birth into an imperishable inheritance through his resurrection, the word of God implanted in you, if we are waiting, not just longing, but sure anticipation and expectation that Jesus' glory is about to be revealed, then how do we live? Well, it's, it's actually pretty pedestrian advice. Shepherd, be a shepherd. Be a shepherd of the flock that is among you. Watch over them. It's the flock of God. You are shepherds. Don't do this as those who are forced to take up a role that they don't really want. Don't do this to get something out of it, not for sordid gain. It is, uh, it's about what the word means. Uh, shame, if there's shame here in this letter that the community needs to reckon with, it's not the shame of outsiders, it's the shame of the desires that wage war against our souls. So, pastors, elders, shepherd willingly, enthusiastically, not for your own gain, not as those under compulsion, but as God would have you do it. Don't lord it over those in your charge. Lord it over is a great translation here. Um, and he says, don't lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Um, the word translated here, in your charge, um, it actually is related to the, to the idea of casting a lot. Um, and since the lot is in the hand of God, the idea is the portion of God's flock that has, been, that has fallen to you, that has been entrusted to you. And I think that's really an interesting way to unpack this. You know, we have these complicated call processes. How did you get where you are now? How do you know when it's time to move? Um, this image allows us, I think, really to trust in the providence of God in all the messiness of the process 
these are the people that God has assigned to me for this time. And at least for me, that, um, that looking for something else, that, that wondering if it would be better if I were elsewhere, um, is part of how I start to feel unwilling in the place that God has called me. And I wonder if Peter is not subtly reminding us that, um, that one of the keys to serving willingly is to recognize that this is a charge that's been committed to us by God. Uh, those crazy people on the, on the uh, search committee, they're in the hands of God. Uh, the, uh, the people that played politics and kept me from the place I thought I was called, they're in the hands of God. I'm in the place God has assigned me. And uh, until he gives me another place, I'll serve willingly. I'll serve enthusiastically. Not lording it over, but being examples. And again, I think this is just, this is deep given what he has told us. Um, I, I think about the story that's in all of the Gospels, but it's, it's so striking in Mark. Mark develops this pattern. You guys, many of you have probably preached on this, um, where Jesus three times predicts his upcoming suffering and death in Jerusalem. And each time Mark follows it with a story where the disciples are arguing in one way or another about who's the greatest. So finally Jesus turns to them after the third time and he says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over those under their charge. They're the great men. Not so among you. The least among you is the greatest. The one who would be great should be the servant. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Peter has given us in this letter Jesus who left an example so that we could walk in his footsteps. When he says not lording it over the flock, but serving as an example, it's another call to imitate Christ, the great shepherd. He has left us a pattern to follow. And so Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, this one whose example we are following and through us and and." and Hopefully, through us, our flocks will follow his example as well. Peter says, when he appears, isn't he's going to chastise you because you didn't do it perfectly. He's going to give you a hard time because of all the times you failed. He says, you'll receive the crown of glory that never fades away. And as someone who's not an elder, who's not a pastor, um, I just want to say to you, <laughs> um, I hope you will take encouragement that the God who has called you and who is working through your ministries is so pleased with your stumbling and halting efforts. And when he appears, he's going to appear not with a stick to beat you, but with a crown to say, well done. And, uh, and that's all of, it's all of his grace. But, but he's a gracious chief shepherd. Um, I have been uh, encouraged in more ways than I could recount this week just by sitting with you all, overhearing conversations, having you talk to me, minister to me. Um, somebody asked jokingly after, after last night, what do you think of the future of the church? I was thinking, man, knowing that people like you all are in ministry, are shepherding God's flock, gives me tremendous encouragement and hope. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, I'm sick. No, it really does. So, when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. 
Now, if I were preaching on this passage in my local church, I would certainly keep going because Peter says, now you who are younger, I take it younger in the faith or perhaps younger as in not an elder, accept the authority of the elders. Set yourself under. Um, Peter has been working with this whole notion of the ordered household. God's household is ordered as well. Subject yourselves to the authority of the elders and all of you, younger and elders alike, clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. This is such a great image. I think this is the only time in the New Testament this word shows up, but it's to tie on. Tie on a scarf, but I think without any lexical evidence of Jesus getting up from the meal and tying on a towel. Clothe yourselves in humility with one another. Humility that characterizes Christ, characterizes our interaction one with another. And the reason to do this, now he's going to quote Scripture for the last time, I think getting our attention because this is so important. God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. It's ironic that when I am most proud is when I tend to think I'm on God's side <laughs> and God's on my side, but Peter says God opposes the proud. But because he gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand so that he may exalt you in due time. The pattern of Christ has so infused Peter's thinking, the sufferings of Christ, the glories that will follow it. It becomes a, a model even for daily walking with God. When we will humble ourselves, when we will put ourselves under God's mighty hand, God our judge, but even more, the God who has loved us and become our Father through Jesus Christ, then in due time, God is committed to lifting us up, to exalting us up. Cast all your anxiety then on Him because it matters to Him about you. You matter to Him. Your situation matters to Him. Your fears matter to Him. Your anxieties matter to Him. Your failures matter to him, cast all of this on him because he cares for you. And then an abrupt shift of mood. Be sober. Stay awake. Keep watch. Your adversary, and this is a courtroom term, your adversary, the accuser, walks around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to swallow up. Um, roaring like a lion in my text is italicized. It seems to echo Psalm 22, the complaint of Jesus on the cross. I'm surrounded by lions who open their mouths at me and roar, who pierce my hands and my feet. We do have an enemy. And... Um, for Peter, behind all of the human opposition, there's something even greater. Like a roaring lion, he seeks someone to devour, but you can stand up against him, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being brought to completion by the brotherhood in the whole world. You know, here we are in our little place, and I, I, I imagine... What, what would it sound like if someone in a, in a house church in China heard this message? 
I mean, I would be embarrassed, actually. I said, what's this guy talking about? Suffering, fiery trial. Uh, and, you know, Peter, in a sense, may be trying to get these earliest communities to look beyond and say, you're part of something quite large. And your lot is thrown in with people who are suffering just like you are, or for us, much worse than we are. So we stand firm because this too is in the sovereign hand of God, because the God of all grace, the God who gives grace to the humble, the God who has called you into eternal glory in Christ, into this inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, this is the one who will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's letter ends here, really, in praise, in doxology, just as it began. But as a, as a vivid reminder that this community is in fellowship with others, he offers greetings. Greetings through Sylvanus, probably the bearer of the letter, a faithful brother, your sister, church in Babylon. Sister church is the translation um, for uh, Peter's word, which is sunaklekte, the she who is elect together with you, probably refers to the community, uh, but yet one more reminder in a letter full of reminders about God's sovereignty that you also, with your fellow Christians, are chosen and elect by God. They send your greetings. You're not alone. You're not alone. Other churches are praying for you, even as you pray for them. And my son, Mark, so greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. I'd be interested, certainly, um, in the next 15 minutes or so, if there are questions, that's fine. But if, if any of you would like to share just maybe what some of the takeaways for you might be from having sat with First Peter, I think that could be really encouraging to all of us as well. Um, it's a letter rich in lots of themes, um, but it may be that you've, you've heard something that really fits your situation that someone else here needs to hear about too. So I'd invite you either to ask a question or also, you know, Keep the mini-sermons to 60 seconds or two minutes or whatever, unlike me, but um, please feel free. Let's just uh, build each other up. Thanks. During Lent, I was walking with Jesus through following Mark uh, to Jerusalem, and you talked about the three ways in which Jesus prepared, and I, most scholars, I don't know if you do or not, believe that Mark was influenced a great deal by Peter. Yeah. So I think that you still learn a lot about Peter in Mark. Yeah. When you get to John 21, I always think that that was when Jesus released Peter of his guilt. I do not know that he would have gone back and told the disciples, I denied Jesus. Huh. In fact, I wonder if he did not hold that inside of him that whole way. And then that's why he says, I'm going back to the life of, of fishing. I, I can't continue to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Jesus meets him at his deepest guilt and addresses that and releases him not only the guilt, but empowers him then to be the great shepherd uh, of, the, of the flock. So I think what you're doing here reflects what Peter had lived out in his own life. Yeah, thanks, Clint. Boy, that's really, that's really rich. I, you know, the, the, he, he mentions Mark, my son. Um, 
I think that's a clear canonical guide to do exactly what you're saying, which is to see that connection and, and, and uh, to make those, those kinds of links. God, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then followed up, humble yourselves, therefore. Yeah. Humble in the first sense being opposite of proud, but then humble yourself under God. Submit yourself is what I understood. Do you know the Greek in there, the, well, the Hebrew from the, I don't remember. It's a, yeah, it's gonna look real two quick. different kinds of humility, if I see that there. Um, yeah, it, it's, the same, it's the same word, the same root. Uh, so a, a, a verb and a noun, or a verb and an adjective. Um, I, I take it to, uh, so he, he's used the word for submit or sub, sub-order yourself a number of times, but, but here, I, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where to go with that. It, it, it's God's, God gives grace to the humble, so make yourself humble, I think is, and so I think that covers lots of things. It might be submitting to what God wants to do. It might be, I, I'm going to humble myself and ask for help. I was too proud to ask. Um, so I think it's as wide, the verb is as wide as the adjective would be. But maybe I've not missed, or maybe I've missed kind of what, where you wanted to go with that then. Uh, okay. Say, too, I really like your shirt, by the way. Yes. Oh, thanks. <laughs> All right. Actually, after a couple beers, my eyes get kind of this greeny, green color. And, yeah. Troy? What's been interesting for me, of course, in juxtaposition with Ben in the evening, is that First Peter has this community in mind that's really being, you know, uh, the potential of being a social pariah. You've got persecution in the communities you have, or the potential for it. You have probably injustices coming their way. Yeah. And you would think that in those kind of scenarios that a righteous, justified anger would be reasonable. It would be something that you would expect to be a mm. normal response. Mm. And um, I get this in my, my own communities as well, that, you know, the uh, changing culture is infuriating them and a lot of anger in their midst. And um, we can see this in ourselves as ministers become less and less, um, you know, appreciated by the society at large. And this real strong bent towards the removal of one's anger, not responding in like kind, having your example be one of gentleness rather than trying to even the scales, gain the justice, um, show that we have strength um, has been a unique thing for me. And I'm just curious for you on further reflection on that, that righteous anger being put aside for the humility of Christ. Well, that's well said. Um, I mean, I've, I've read, as you have probably, pundits, you know, just talking about the level of anger in the last election cycle especially. Um, and you turn on the radio on the left or on the right, and, and there's anger. And um, it actually makes me wonder how striking it is when we see people who don't act in anger but who have reasoned arguments or who have the stubbornness to stand up but also not vilify the people they're standing up against. Um, I do think, you know, there, there are other voices in the canon. We, we get Jesus angry in the temple. You know, there are times when anger is the right response. Um, and I don't know if, um, 
again, it, it just wisdom seems like the, the dominant thing. How do we, we discern together what is the right response? But if, if Plutarch's any example, and I, I realize I'm going outside the New Testament here, I think Proverbs would actually support what he says, though. Um, anger itself is a passion that needs to be brought under control. But firmness and decisiveness and boldness in action on behalf of justice is, once anger is under control, is actually facilitated. Um, the person in control of his or her temper is able, it would seem like Proverbs would suggest, Plutarch would suggest, is able to act much more effectively and boldly. Um, so I, I mean, part of the issue then is what, what do we mean when we talk about anger? Uh, but I think overall, you're right, there's a call here to, to humility, to, to, to resist, but to do it politely. Um, so David Horrell, who's writing really interesting stuff on Philippians, um, talks about Peter is offering a, a way of polite resistance. He's British, so that, that kind of works. Polite, I don't think, really works. I, I mean, the, it doesn't mean the same thing for us. But Miroslav Volf has, has written a, a really great article in First Peter as well where he, he says what Peter is going for is what, it, what he calls a soft difference. Rather than the kind of hard difference that you find maybe with John the seer in Revelation, us or them, they're the beast, it's a soft difference. He's trying on the one hand to, to, to build up a contrast community that's shaped around Christ and Christ's virtues rather than those of the culture. But at the same time, it's meant to be as soft a difference as possible because others are welcome to join. Um, to be so confident in the rightness of God's kingdom that we don't have to be angry in defending it. I, I mean, that, that, how do we get there? I don't know. Because there's an awful lot of stuff that ought to make us angry and ought to grieve our hearts. And so I'm glad you drew attention to that. I love the uh, image of the roaring lion that you just brought out. Maybe you can help flush that out a little bit for us. You know, as pastors, <clears throat> I think we feel that many times we are really fighting against the uh, battle of uh, the powers to be. And um, when Peter talked about this, was he just talking about it as a a government, um, or was he really talking about it, uh, that personal, you don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness? I, I'm pretty convinced that for the New Testament writers, um, Lauren Stuckenberg has this great phrase, that, that human beings share social space with superhuman entities, and that among those with whom we share space are what the Greeks called daimons, demons, that for Christian tradition always seek harm. Um, we also share space with angels, but, but demon has a wider meaning in Greek than it does in, in Christian tradition. Um, and so it's not an either-or for Peter. Um, Satan, the roaring lion, can manifest his power in the government, although I don't think he simply identifies the government with Satan. Government can become a tool. My own passions can become a tool. Um, human community beyond the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, we were talking about corporations the other day. All of these are, are permeable, I guess, and can become areas in which 
we have opponents that seek our destruction and they, and they try to get at us. So I, I think that, um, I guess I'm more inclined to try to let the New Testament stretch my view of what the world is than try to just translate it into a kind of scientific worldview. Um, but there are, in, there are ways we can do that. I mean, people talk about the evils in systems or they talk about the, the, the evils within ourselves, that, that the patterns that can disrupt us. Um, I think those are all important ways of looking at what still has ultimately a, a greater source. Um, at least if we'll think with Peter along those lines for a while, it becomes, I think, apparent why he goes into that strange story in the end of chapter 3 about Christ being preaching to the spirits in prison. As a reminder that God's been in control since way before the flood, way before Jesus, even back to the flood. But that Jesus' resurrection is just one further confirmation that evil's days are limited. And he ends up with Christ seated at God's right hand above every angel, every authority, every power. Not just Jesus is greater than Rome, but Jesus is greater than the power source when Rome goes wrong. Um, so I think on a personal level, um, we ought to be thinking in Ephesians 6 terms. Our, our, and First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 10, our, our our warfare is not just against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. It's against the kinds of mindsets that distort and threaten us. Uh, chapter 4, verse 17, that call to obey the gospel of God seemed like a very peculiar phrase. I, we're told again and again, believe the gospel, proclaim the gospel, but not to yeah. obey the gospel. Oh, that great. was really weird. And then... We always, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here you have a three yeah. words that you don't, and then it's not been picked up in our vocabulary or in hymnody anywhere to obey the gospel. So we, yeah. uh, you know, I've been told the gospel is an indicative uh, and, and we obey imperatives, but indicatives are different. Oh, but I, I guess sometimes I tell people, you know, repentance is bringing our lives into alignment with the gospel, but I... Is Peter working with some different idea of what the gospel is that when he says to obey the gospel, to obey an announcement seems just odd. I, I don't know if you had any comments on that. Yeah, oh man, that's a great comment. Um, you've, you've noticed that Peter doesn't have as much to say about believing as about uh, obeying. All right, he, he talks about believing in the positive, but the negative, except for one place, isn't unbelief, it's disobedience. Which I think helps us see that for him, trust, faith involves an engagement with, with God that brings us into a, a right relationship. It's going to involve our whole life. Um, if, so gospel means an announcement. If, if the announcement is Jesus is Lord, then the indicative also implies with it the imperative. If he's Lord, then you need to subject yourself to his lordship. And, and so I, I love your, your way of talking about coming into alignment with the gospel. Um, yes, it's an, an announcement about what God's done for us, but that very announcement um, has to reshape our lives. Otherwise, we haven't, we haven't heard it. Um, David Ford talks about the gospel being a, a speech act uh, like someone shouting fire in a theater. <laughs> uh, you've got to do something. Or like someone whispering, will you marry me? I mean, it's, a, it's an announcement of God's accomplishment that also 
calls for our obedience. Yeah, so. I think there was, uh, it was Sunny. Yeah, and then. Being a lover of Narnia, uh, <laughs> I've, I'm always drawn to any reference to lions. <laughs> and um, it's occurred to me across the years, and I, and I never mentioned it to anybody else, kind of intimidated with all these theologians here, but um, that Satan aspires to be the lion, mm. but um, he, so he prowls about like a roaring lion, but he's yeah. not the lion. Nice. Good. Thank you. Maybe, uh, Scott, we'll give you the last, uh, last question, last word. Yeah, a couple things on, the, um, I see the word humble and humility a lot, and then we were talking about the wives submitting. I remember in the, in the Ephesians passage, looking at the verb submit was, was a reflexive verb, sort of an almost like an optional, like in the power that you have, uh, voluntarily, you know, give in to your husbands in, in, in certain ways, whereas the love in that passage, that's a command for the men to love. Mm-hmm. And, but, it, but it takes me back, the word humility takes me back, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I had a Sunday school teacher who used to translate the word humility. He would give this, he had this image of chariot horses, and he said, uh, they have all this power, but unless they control it, it was, it was along the lines of the self-control aspect of humility. Mm-hmm. Unless they control it, it's not going to go anywhere. So they have to actually kind of hold, if, if one of the horses is weaker, they have to kind of downscale a little bit. If, if the other's pulling them harder, then they have to step up. And, and so there was this element of self-control mm-hmm. in the word humility that, that meant you could react in a different way. You could you know, just kind of shun humility, but you choose to, to be humble. Mm. So there was a power in that image that, yeah. that humility conveyed that I always liked. Yeah. So Thank you yeah. for sharing that. I, I think for Peter, what makes humility, uh, what gives it these kinds of meanings ultimately is the story of Jesus. Uh, humility is what we're called to because that's how Jesus acted. And so I think again in Mark ten forty five, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. That's power, that's strength. Some, uh, some uh, folks have suggested that the Philippians hymn might be translated correctly, um, given what Paul is doing with this. Not although he was in the form of God, he took the form of a slave, but because he was in the form of God, he took the form of slave. That's a, that's a secondary reading once we realize that, well, what we really know about God we find in the face of Jesus. And uh, so God's power is not diminished in humbling himself but he humbles himself in love. Let me, um, if you would indulge me, read one more of Malcolm Geith's sonnets. This one, uh, as, a, as an invitation to prepare our hearts for worship and for the table. This one is called Sanctus. We gather as his church on God's good earth and listen to the requiem's intense, long, love-laden keening, calling forth echoes of Eden Blessing every sense with brimming blisses, every death with birth, until all passion passes into praise. I bless the hidden threads that drew us here. I bless this day distinct amidst our days. I bless the light, the music-laden air. I bless the interweaving of our ways. 
the lifting of the burdens that we bear. I bless the broken body that we share. Sanctus, the heart. Sanctus, the spirit cries. Sanctus, the flesh in every touch replies.